Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, stop the introduction. Now, <laughs> you had some medical stuff that was going on, tests, thoughts. I don't care about introductions. Tell me what's going on. Oh, man, Aaron, I feel I'm about I about floated into the microphone today. Uh, my dear wife, Allie, who has faced so many medical challenges over the last 10 years, including uh, breast cancer, uh, we had... Uh, a much dreaded appointment today with an oncologist because a recent PET scan had turned up hot spots two places close to where she previous had previously had cancer, and uh, we were braced for the worst. Uh, it's been you know just waiting. F- <laughs> this has been a test of our faith, and it, it's drawn us together. It's been a good thing. Uh, I, neither one of us slept very well last night, but. Uh, the, the, the oncologist today gave us the entirely unexpected news that he doesn't believe that either of those spots are cancer, that uh, no further testing required at this time, image it again in a year, and uh, I feel 50 pounds lighter. Allie does as well. Man. I'm grateful. That's just grateful for uh, yeah. friends who prayed. Uh, that had cast a long shadow over our future. I'm trying to make plans for next year, wanting to be able to get out and travel, do some 48 hours of frankness around the country. Have guys come here. I have things just gaining speed at Frank at, at Samson Manor here in Mount Pleasant. And we had this long shadow over the year where, you know, I was quite certain Allie and I would be slogging through cancer treatment. And, uh, that did not come to pass. Hallelujah. Man, you guys have had enough hard news over the last number of years that that yeah, does yeah. become the expected. Okay, yeah. we're going in, so something hard is going to happen. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. good. Uh, you know, only people that have gone through this can understand how this kind of day feels when you've tried to exist with the kind of the overhanging shadow of that. Yeah. And, you know, at the the same time, I just got a message a little while ago from a brother who'd gotten the opposite news from, you know, um, in in regards to a member of his family. And he's now facing the thing, the very real thing that I was afraid we would be facing. Mm. And it's going to be, you know, you know, and and I think, you know, the call and the challenge for me and for those who love this brother is to walk with him through the valley of the shadow. Uh, all of us have to take that walk at some point or another. Uh, for us, it's not this time, apparently, but that time will come. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and, the, and the hardest thing is when it comes more than once. Yeah, when you feel yeah. like, oh, I've already walked through the valley of the shadow. Yeah, yeah. And then you make it to the other side and you go, oh, wait, wasn't that? I, I don't know. I, I love God. Let's not, let's not misunderstand what I'm about to say. I love God. But sometimes I wish I only had to learn lessons once. <laughs> and so yeah. often it's, oh, I'm done with that. That was really hard. And then the next season is, okay, let's do that again. 
we yeah. we can go deeper on that. Yeah. And oh, to be compassionate with ourselves mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, to not give God loopholes and to be compassionate with the people around us yeah. who are exhausted. And I don't, you must know these people. I know people that I'm like, God, why the, the fifth round? Why? Yeah. Th- that seems too much. And I am not God. I know that yeah. I'd make a horrible God. Let no one make me a God. I would really screw things up. But, oh, when we go through friends' lives that that are going through that, we can only give them compassion and love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And presence. I think that's the greatest gift, is to actually, you know, we can't deliver people from circumstance, but we can sit with them in the circumstance. We can so, be there. So what does that we mean? We can help to bear one another's burdens. What right? does that mean practically to you, to give presence to a person like you just described when they're going through. Well, you know, we like specifically, let's talk about a cancer diagnosis. Our experience is we get a cancer diagnosis. Um, there are well-meaning people who come out of the woodwork who oh, want to make you feel better. My, my sphincter has already puckered. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, you're going to get a thousand miracle cures. Try this holistic uh, thing. It'll cure right. her for sure. Exactly. Um, and it's a, either that or they're going to avoid the topic entirely. There is this middle ground, which is very tough to accept that it's there uh, and to uh, sit in the discomfort and the pain and the fear and the anxiety and to feel with, all of us want to feel felt. We, uh, you know, to be seen and known and loved for who we are and where we are. That's where the relief comes. Okay, so you've and gone that, you've gone through this with yeah. stuff that Allie's gone through. Yeah. What does that look like practically for someone to come in and not over-assert there, oh, I am deeply in this with you, so here's the solution, right. or I'm ignoring it. What does it look like? What what did it look like for the people that did the middle ground? Uh, there were people who uh, sat with us and cried with us, and there were people who, they didn't just say, if I can do anything to help, let me know, but there were people who brought meals uh, or people who just came and and listened and <laughs> and and we didn't always have to talk about cancer we could talk about other things but cancer we never had to pretend that it wasn't there mm, that's huge right there you didn't yeah. have to talk about it but also you felt sure they weren't pretending it wasn't there right exactly I mean that's yeah. that's a hard middle ground yeah 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 but just not to be alone in the circumstance and then let's pray together. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's not rocket surgery, but it is incredibly difficult when you want to give a solution. Yeah. Ah. Well, hey, with that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, on the, I got. Uh, let's do this. 
since we just we started with good news from a doctor and we've been talking about medical stuff. What do you say we have a conversation with a doctor? Want to do that? I'd like to talk to a doctor about everything. Please, okay. especially right. one who is, you know, swarthy. Find <laughs> me a swarthy doctor and we'll do that. <laughs> All right. I, uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to touch that, Aaron. <laughs> I, I love I love me a swarthy doctor. Just get on to this. Come on, stay tuned. Uh, yeah, do stay with us. Want to come back? We're gonna have a great conversation with a doctor. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. What a joy it is to have on this edition of the show. A fellow who I had the good fortune to meet a few months ago uh, when I was speaking in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, great church, New Vision Baptist Church. Uh, I met this guy who's written, by the way, a great book uh, titled Happy, Joyous, and Free. His name is Uris. He is a physician. He has an extraordinary story. He goes by Uris S. And the reason for that is he is uh, a member of an organization in which anonymity is highly prized. Uh, is, so would it, would it be wrong? Cause I don't want to, I don't know all the rules, you know, yeah. and I break rules a lot and I don't mean yeah. to, but I enjoy it, but I don't mean to. Is it wrong for me to say that Uris like showed his muscles by adjusting his glasses and has delightfully strong arms. They look wonderful. <laughs> Well, a, there is a backstory to that. This guy is cut. He is a physical specimen, and you're not going to believe, really. But uh, I don't think that was always the case. So, Uris, let's back up. Uh, your dad was an was an immigrant from Japan, an architect. True. Yes. yes. Now, your mom in America. They met at University of Chicago. She was a chemist. Uh, you're an only child. Yes. Uh, and then, at some point in elementary school, you got. You got taken down, beaten up by an older kid, right? Yeah. Is that the point at which you decided that ain't happening again? Yeah. Uh, well, that was the point where, you know, my life became all about performance, appearance, and control. And I really, I had remember having this conscious thought at the time I was in sixth grade where I thought, I'm going to show them. I'm going to be bigger, faster, stronger, better, richer, whatever it is to make them feel as bad as they've made me feel now. Yeah. Can I, well, can I ask you this? I, I I don't know what we're supposed to be talking about, but can I, can I ask you this? I, I had a dear friend who was a bodybuilder who was bullied a lot as a young kid. And even as he got stronger and faster and all of that, he still saw himself as that kid that got bullied. Like it didn't fix it the way he thought it would. How did that work for you when you're well, like, yeah, I'm I mean, not going to take this again? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of my story is all these things that I thought I could achieve and uh, all these goals that I attained, you know, every time I would reach another level or, you know, get something that I, or get to where I wanted to be, I still felt this emptiness inside of me. Like I was never satisfied. And it's interesting you say that because some, you know, I'm a pretty big guy, but I really don't think of myself in that way. You know, I think I'm pretty normal size, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was a lot of me, you know, trying to prove to the world, you know, my worth, you know, because yeah. I, I grew up 
in a house where we didn't go to church. Uh, there was no talk about spirituality. You know, our uh, little G gods were, you know, both of my parents were immigrants. So, you know, they taught me let, to chase the American dream, you know, get a good job, uh, make a lot of money, have a nice family, nice house. You know, that was, that was success, you know, yeah, and then yeah. and, and coupled with that, you know, is, is, you know, me being bigger, stronger, faster than right. and just proving myself in, in, in my mind better than other people. And so, you know, that drove a lot of my actions and behaviors for a very long time. So your dad was from Japan. Where was your mom from? My mom is from Latvia, which is a country in Eastern Europe. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like she immigrated from there. So you're first Correct. generation on both sides. Correct. And yeah. from people I know that are first generation Chinese and Japanese, there's kind of a shame-based thing that comes into that where performance is very important. Did you experience that from from your upbringing or was it different for you? Uh, I wouldn't say that uh, I felt shame from my father or my parents, but there was a lot of focus on working hard and succeeding in academics and, you know, getting a good job and excelling in that area and earning a lot of money. And again, chasing the American dream. Right. So earning earning a lot of money was a big part of that for you. And then once you have the American dream, then you'll be happy. And excelling academically. I mean, your dad was was teaching you or trying to teach you algebra when you were like two, three years old, right? Well, yeah, I was was six. And uh, yeah, I remember crying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, Jesus, he he was six. Just leave him alone. That was (laughs) fine. That's right. He's doing, he's doing, I don't know. I still can't tell you. So, yeah. But here's the thing. This guy, Aaron, this guy is freaking brilliant. So he gets jumped from second grade to third grade. He's always at the top of the class. And, And at one point, tell the story about uh, when you were, Shame for being on the honor roll and how, how, how you, how you did that. Well, yeah, I, that was also in sixth grade. It seems like a lot of pivotal moments happened for me and other people around middle school time. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, my name was always on the high honor roll and I was always getting picked on because, you know, I was the only Asian kid in a pretty much all white suburb and I was the smart Asian kid and you know how kids are is you're, you're excelling at being smart. So we're going to pick on you for that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, so in, in order for my name to not get on the high honor roll, you know, I knew what the right answers were so I could put the wrong answers. So I purposefully got B's uh, one, one, sem- one semester and, and the principal pulled me in his office and he said, Yuris, what are you doing? And I said, what, what do you mean? What am I doing? <laughs> I, I know you're the smartest kid in the school. How'd you get all B's? And then I told him that I purposefully got B's and he said, don't do that. He said, if you don't want your name on the high honor roll, we just won't put it up there. You know, do the best that you can. But that just shows, you know, how this awkward kid who's trying to fit in to try and get other people to accept them, to try and get other people to like him. You know, those were those were the lengths that I went to to try and get that approval. Wait, so tell me how you felt about that moment, because I don't know if that guy was the hero or the villain of this story. I'm kind of confused right now how to. So did you feel like, oh, you're protecting me being me or what? Tell me what you felt. Well, I just actually, it kind of, in looking back now, it kind of looks, I, I, it kind of made me feel like that's such an obvious thing. Like I could, I, I wouldn't ask for help. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this way. I'm not being accepted and all this stuff. I'm having a problem. And I didn't feel like I could reach out to anyone for help. And here he comes in and he's like, if, if you have this problem, you know, we can just, 
not yeah. put your name up there. No big deal. And All I right. thought, wow, what a concept. But, you know, it still took me another 30-something years to start asking for help the way that I okay. needed to. Okay. So he was the hero being like, we can come up with a simple solution for this simple problem. Yeah. You just yes. be you. And yes. that's that's uh, that's the, the heroic, beautiful part. All right, go on. I'm I'm listening. I'm fascinated. Is, Keep going. This is this is what I love. This is part of. This is so common in the makeup, the the inner architecture of an addict. It's certainly true of me. It is hard for us to ask for help. There mm-hmm. is this independent streak that is so deep, and uh, always willing to help. Very hard to ask for help. So um, you're excelling. You uh, you make it into a, a you know a top college. You go to Northwestern. I mean, you're, you're pre med. Then you go to medical school. Uh, you meet and marry an extraordinary woman. Um, at one, tell us about kind of your. <laughs> you excelled in college despite uh, the level to which your drinking had risen, and despite the uh, nickname that your classmates gave you. Yeah. I'd love you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I started drinking in earnest when I was 15 and I just, I drank pretty much on weekends and, um, and, and during the week a lot actually during college. But the, the mantra that was taught to me growing up is, well, if you take care of your business and you excel and, uh, you excel and succeed, you know, in the things that are important, like academics and getting your grades and, and you're not, you know, getting arrested or, then you can do whatever you want. And, you know, I love drinking from age 15 because, you know, I could be the person that I always wanted to be. You know, yeah. I could I could say the things that I wanted to say and uh, I didn't have that fear of people accepting me. So, uh, yeah, during college, you know, I was drinking, you know, three, four days a week but and periodically showing up to classes. But, you know, thank God I'd just been gifted that I was able to still get the grades that I needed to get to get into medical school, which is – I'm not sure if that's positive or negative because maybe I avoided a lot of the negative consequences early on that I could have gotten help earlier. Uh, but I really wasn't having negative consequences at that point in yeah. terms of worldly things. Now, in terms of relationships and, you know, and, um, uh, you know, really connecting with people, I really wasn't very good at that because, you know, most of the time I was drinking when I was in situations trying to do that. I really, and I couldn't be myself. Yeah. 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 Uh, skipping ahead. I, I still didn't hear the nickname. Oh, you didn't yeah, tell the, me the nickname. Yeah, yeah. yeah my nickname is Eurus No Moderation. <laughs> that was true okay. for me then, and it's true for me still today. <laughs> All right. All right. So when they gave you that nickname, did it occur to you, people are seeing me differently than I see myself, or did it just like go right over your head? No, I kind of actually love that nickname. Because <laughs> really everything that I did, I either did it all the way 100%, so I would do it perfect and excel at it, or I just wouldn't do it at all. Um, mm-hmm. But fortunately for me, I was excelling in many different things. So that no moderation, I, you know, I, I liked that. I, I really yeah. stepped into that. Yeah. Man, so did that become a part of your – I mean, I'm hearing this. You're telling the story now being a person with more perspective. And, and so that nickname – should have been horrifying that, oh, they're saying I'm taking everything too far. Mm-hmm. But I can think of myself in my 20s and and that kind of nickname becomes the identity. Yes. How much did that touch on your identity of I am this person who 
is, not who can do, but who is. This is me. I can pull this off. Like, how did your identity fit in with a nickname like that that you embraced? Yeah, I, and you know, I stepped into it, and I exactly what you said. I embraced it, and then sometimes I would even push myself to be even more of that. So I would yeah. even go more over the top to to show people like I really am no moderation. You know, I I remember you know bonging beers from the fraternity house and things like that, and, and you know yeah. trying to chug beers faster than everybody else. And I I, I want I and now I had this desire to even live up to that nickname. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of any wise seventy year old man who would embrace that nickname. It's <laughs> it's only it's only we who are in our early twenties who would be like, yeah, call me that. Yeah, <laughs> but that shows a lot about the wisdom that you've come to. Yeah, All right. Yeah, but moderation to me, like moderation, is kind of my mantra and like a lot of things now. <laughs> And uh, yeah. It, yeah, it's a good, I don't think wise and no moderation really go together um, <laughs> unless it's, unless it's all for Christ and for God. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've heard it put this way, moderation in all things, including mm-hmm. moderation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yours, it's a lot of this is about, so performing, it's about looking good. You also, you've capitalized on your good looks. You've worked, you've worked as a model at some point along the way. Right. Yeah. You're done. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's a career I never had. They, they just never came knocking. I don't know. I can't figure it out. Man, yeah. Can't put that on my resume. Uh, but you, and you also, I'm not cl- exactly clear on when you did this, but you found, you made your way onto ESPN. Yes. In a, in a, in a, in a novel way. So tell us how you got famous. And certainly you probably did it thinking fame will fill the hole. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I always, again, no moderation. I always knew I could eat a lot and I would always watch because a lot of people do the Nathan's hot dog contest on the 4th of July. And when I moved to Tennessee, there was a crystal qualifier contest at the Tennessee state fair. And yeah, I hadn't practiced or tried it or anything. I just said what I just knew what I saw on TV. So I showed up for the qualifier and in that qualifier, I ate 33 crystals in eight minutes and all the people who were like really involved in competitive eating at that time all came running up to me going, wow, nobody just shows up and just does that. Like, you know, you have to practice for a long time and all this stuff. And then I thought, well, if I practice just a little bit, maybe I can get, you know, my way up the ranks. And so I did. Wait, can, can we pause there real is- quick? And, and I don't mean to be ignorant. What What is a crystal? Is, oh. that, a, is that a hot dog? No, no, it's like a White Castle. So. Don't pick on me, Nate. Yeah, how long have you lived like, in Tennessee and you haven't had a crystal yet? You and I got some work to do, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so it's it's a hamburger. It's yeah, it's yeah. a mini hamburger. Yeah, okay. kind of like a slider. Yeah. Well, hey, hey, listeners, that's for the rest of you ignorant people out there like me. All right, go on with your story. You've no, ate a lot of crystals. Wait, wait. So. Did you pick up? Wait, did you pick up on this though? This 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 is a there is a there's. There's a governing body. There's a league. I mean, competitive eating is a legitimate <laughs> sport. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So best sport ever. All right. So now you're training for it. Yeah. So I started training for it and I started entering <laughs> qualifiers and stuff. And, you know, I got to the point high up in the rankings in the top 10 and we did uh, a three video series that was shown on Spike TV. And then I finally qualified for the Nathans, which was, you know, that's the, that's the Super Bowl of competitive eating. 
Oh, and, yeah, um, it's the ultimate. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, it really, I'm, the truth is, you know, I wasn't going to win. I knew I wasn't going to win, but I, I could qualify. And I had my 15 seconds of fame on ESPN in 2008. And uh, it, it was great. You know, I, they, they panned to me during the contest and they, they said, this is Uris, is an orthopedic spine surgeon from Middle Tennessee. And, you know, he was, <laughs> and they said some things about me and it, it was great. And then, but yeah, after, you know, I, I thought that they would fill this God-sized hole in my heart. You know, I was looking to be satisfied, affirmed, you know, um, yeah. able to really appreciate me. And, you know, after it was all said and done, like a couple of people said some stuff to me about it. And then that was pretty much it. You know, I was expecting, you know, Sports Illustrated to call and ESPN <laughs> and modeling games <laughs> and all this stuff. And none of that stuff happened, you know? Yeah. So, because it was, it was never about the journey. It was about me getting on ESPN, and that's what it was all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope you picked up on this. By this time, he is—he's not just a doctor. He's not just a surgeon. He's an orthopedic spine surgeon. That's uh, the ultimate. There are not very many of those. Holy talk about delicate surgery. Okay, so that's freaking phenomenal. So you're talk about a high performer. You are a highly functional alcoholic. Uh, how did marriage go under these conditions? So, yeah, I, my first marriage, uh, you know, I got married in college, as you mentioned, and yeah. my, my wife was also a physician. And, you know, now, now I've arrived, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've reached the American dream. I'm married. I have a beautiful daughter. We have this great house. I've got this great job. We've got good money. And, and still, there's something inside me that's saying, you know, this isn't enough. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not satisfied. There's got to be something more. And then, of course, not having any spiritual basis or morality to live my life by, I thought, I believe the lie that the, the culture tells you. It's like, well, you're just married to the wrong person. Yeah. And so. So pause before you make this transition. I hear a transition coming. <laughs> but Nate also said you're a highly functional alcoholic. And functional alcoholic is one of those phrases, uh, kind of like codependence, that is kind of. Uh, we're not sure if we're supposed to use that. What did that mean to you at this point? What What was the role of alcohol in your life up to this? You're a doctor. You're married. Yeah. So most of my drinking was done out of town. You know, I would go to Vegas or Miami and party with my friends. I really didn't drink much when I was in Murfreesboro um, because I didn't want to jeopardize my career and my reputation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and at that point, again, I really wasn't having negative worldly consequences, but yeah. I obviously was having negative relationship co- uh, consequences, negative family consequences, which, of course, I attributed being the good alcoholic that I am, I attributed to the other person. You know, yeah. so, so what, did, what, what did that mean? How did it affect your relationship at that point? Well, yeah, my, my wife and I were just not connecting. I mean, mm-hmm. we we're not connecting. We were existing together and we were. Uh, well, I was trying to live this facade of having this perfect marriage and this perfect house and this perfect life. And it, I mean, it just wasn't that way. And, you know, I would drink to, to numb that, to get away, to escape. So if we know that al- alcohol isn't the main problem, that it was your favorite solution to avoid the problem, what was the problem at that point? Uh, the problem was me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the problem is me. It's my ego. It's my pride. And again, it's my uh, my need for validation and acceptance and adoration. Uh, I wasn't comfortable with myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I I wasn't the person who God created me. I, and and the, and the frustrating part in it was I achieved everything that I thought that I was supposed to be, mm-hmm. and I still wasn't satisfied. 
And so I was looking for the things in my life that were not, that must be the reason for it. Cause it's obviously not me. And so that, that was that point that I got divorced. Um, and then I got remarried a, a year later. Yeah. I, I've picked up on a couple things. Uh, you know, first of all, we've seen that despite the fact that you're, you are drinking destructively on the weekends, you're confining your drinking to the weekends. You make sure that you, you're not going to show up in the operating room drunk. You're not going to put your patients' lives in jeopardy. Um, so you're highly functional and you're uh, what they are, my good friends in AA call the periodic, the periodic drunk. So mm-hmm. it's not like you had to drink every day. Uh, right. And for those of us who describe our addictive cycles as periodic, that feeds the delusion that someday we're actually going to be able to control it because after all, we can stay away for days at a time, sometimes maybe even weeks at a time. At one point you went months at a time, which can feed the delusion that yes, this thing doesn't control me. I can control it. Yes. Eventually it all did in God's good grace come crashing down. I think we're starting to hit the pivot point. So tell us that part of the story, if you will, yours. Uh, Well, from about 2013 to 2015, my drink, so I, you know, I got remarried. Um, and it, so now I've got another beautiful wife and we have more kids and still trying to keep up this perfect illusion of this, uh, perfect, uh, family. And then I'm holding it all together. And yet I, you know, I still wasn't satisfied. I still didn't think my marriage was going the way that it was, but now, but I also got saved in 2010. So yeah. I, came, I came to believe in God. So now I have you know, the, the, the belief that, you know, I'm not going to get divorced because, um, you know, God hates divorce. So then that's when my drinking really escalated because I was really drinking to numb the pain that all, and all the pain that was created in my mind. Yeah. Anybody looking from the outside at me and my family and my life would say, this guy has it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But again, I was trying to fill this God sized hole and I was still, not understanding who God created me to be. So <clears throat> again, drinking. So, so can we, can we break down? I got saved, which ultimately should give me a new identity in Christ. Yes. And yet there's something where you're drinking now escalates yes. because your conversion air quotes for those listening, yes. uh, your conversion didn't give you a new identity yet. It actually added you added more burden to the shame piece or what, why did that escalate after you became saved? Yes. Well, this is part of the reason why I wrote this book because, uh, when I came, when I came to faith in Christ and I got saved, the instructions that I heard, and I'm not putting this on other people, this is what I heard. Okay. Now follow Jesus. Here's your Bible. Come to church. Good luck. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, that it wasn't until I went through the 12 steps, which was the blueprint for me to really come to understand God and Jesus and who he was and really come to follow him. And mm-hmm. so I, th- I felt like there were a lot of things that were missed. Um, and it, I, I think this is what happened. And I mentioned this in my book, you know, prior to me being saved, when I was drinking and partying and out in Vegas or Miami, in my mind, I thought I'm not hurting anyone. I'm just hurting myself. Mm-hmm. And now, once you're saved, you know, accept Jesus as Christ and Lord. Now the Holy Spirit is indwelling. And now I was having this internal conviction of knowing what I'm doing is not right, and yet mm-hmm. not having the power to get my way out of it. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you were feeling more condemnation than before you were, <laughs> before you knew Christ. Right. Well, and, and yes. it's because I just, I didn't know the things that I needed to do. One thing I never did from 2010 to 2015 when I went to rehab is I never prayed. And it was because, and it's my ego. My thought process is, well, if God knows what I want, he knows what I need. He knows what's going to happen. Why do I need to pray? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can tell you my, my non-prayer technique works so well that I ended up in 90 days of rehab in 2015. <laughs> you know? So, so is, is the non-prayer technique, I have come to a place where now I am knowing more about God, but I'm not knowing him Correct. intimately. Correct. Yeah. Oh, I had all the answers. Like I could answer all the, I could, I could recite scripture and I could give you all the knowledge, but never, ne- none of that ever made it down into my heart. And it was, you know, a lot of things. One, I was never honest enough. I was never vulnerable enough with other people. I wasn't around in group settings where, at, you, you know, this is what I'd like to do in our church is, you know, bring that honesty, that humility, that into the church. Because God can only heal where there's honesty, humility, and truth. Yeah. And, you know, that was missing in my life. And I was still trying to perform. Like, actually, now I was using God and Jesus to try and make me look even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you so got active in church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, you're active in church. What brought you to rehab? So uh, vacations were always the worst, and mm-hmm. I would always because I, you know, then I could really relax. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to put any patients in danger. But I would, I would drink and I would black out, and you know, I was with my wife and kids a lot. I mean, a lot of bad things happened, but it culminated in this horrible vacation in Florida. And I was so drunk uh, and that my wife was like, we can't get him on the plane to get him home. So my 76-year-old mother flies down to Florida to help me drive the van back. And at this time, another physician who was in recovery reported me to my group. And uh, on the way home, when we're driving home, I called the hospital. I said, cancel all my surgeries for tomorrow. And they said, you don't have any surgeries for tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, well, that's funny because I've got surgeries lined up for two months. I said, well, actually, you don't have anything all week. Well, my group said, you have to go to a five-day evaluation for alcoholism because uh, we heard what's going on in Florida and you need to get evaluated before you come back to work. So, and then after my five-day evaluation, that turned into now, nine. Wait, how, how did that feel to hear those words? I mean, this is something you've tried to hide for so long and you're driving with your mom back from Florida. I'm just, I'm feeling what I would feel. Might not be what you feel, but what did you feel at that moment? Well, I, mean, I was angry. You know, I thought, mm-hmm. I haven't had a DUI. I've not put anyone in danger. I've never been drunk at work. I've ne- All of my drinking is on my free time and weekends. And I've not, I've had no legal or work consequences for this. Um, and, but, you know, with a little bit of reflection and time past that, there was some relief in this that mm-hmm. I knew I had a yeah. problem and I didn't know yeah. where to turn and I didn't know what to do. And so, um, yeah, I didn't want to take 90 days off work, but, uh, I knew, I, I knew that my way of life was not working. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was, oh, that's, uh, you, you're talking about something. It feels emotional hearing that mm-hmm. because you were stuck and then you were given an out by one person who said, I'm going to call you on this thing. Yes. And there was part of you that felt angry, but I, I hear that relief part of you. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I don't have to hide anymore. 
I have to do this. Mm -hmm. And then you end up going to rehab. And what was that experience like? Yeah. And that was great. Uh, We, as adults, we never get a opportunity to put a pause button on your life for 90 days to just work on me. And that's when I really, you know, came into a relationship with God through Jesus. And, you know, at this time my life, and this is, I think, part of the, one of the cornerstones of my recovery, you know, Tim Keller says, you won't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. Mm -hmm. And when I was in rehab, I didn't know if I was going to be married when I got out. They say you get, you can go back to work, but you don't really know there was all this uncertainty. So I spent a lot of time in prayer and meditation, imagining my life with just me and God in a room. And am I going to be okay? Like if God is all I have, am I going to be okay if I lose everything? If I lose everything. Yeah. yeah. And I came to the point like, yeah, I'm going to be totally fine. God will take care of me. He'll take care of my wife, my ex-wife, my kids, my family, my job, whatever. And I will be totally fine. And mm-hmm. I think that stri- getting stripped down to that nothingness of, of your just yourself and God uh, really is you, you got to be deconstructed at that point to really reconstruct and rebuild who God really made you to be. Yeah. And was that the first time you experienced 12 steps like in earnest? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I had gone to a handful of A meetings before rehab, but you know, I, I always hear, I, I didn't really, I didn't hear much, I guess I should say, you know, I, I listened, but nothing really got in, but yeah, I mean, and I, again, the, the no moderation thing actually worked great because, you know, the big book says half measures availed us nothing. And it says twice in the big book, yeah. remember it was agreed in the beginning, we would go to any lengths for victory mm-hmm. over alcohol. And that's what it takes to overcome yeah. alcoholism. You have to go to any lengths. And the reason why most people fail is because they go to half lengths mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what strikes me, the place that you went, the ranch out in Nunnally, Tennessee, it's a it's a terrific uh, uh, treatment center. It's not a Christian treatment center, nor yes. is AA a Christian program. But my experience getting sober in 12-step recovery from my sex addiction is that in a way, being periodically, for a time, temporarily deprived of my Christian vocabulary uh, and and deprived of my church persona, Yes, um, it was almost like a spiritual rebirth it's as though scales fell off. And it, and that's when, for me at least, the Bible changed. <laughs> so not, even though I grew up in church, even though I accepted Christ at a young age, even though I was a pastor for many years, when people ask me, when was I converted? I know I was saved a long time ago, but I feel like conversion happened around the time I walked into a recovery meeting. Yes. Does that resonate with you? No, Absolutely. And, uh, and that's what I love about the, the big book is that, you know, for me, particularly, it resonates with me with my specific disease. And, yeah. you know, and I, you know, I wrote about the history of AA. It actually was founded out of a mostly non-alcoholic Christian fellowship. So a lot right. of the principles um, come from that. But also what I found is it just it's in a language that speaks to me where I can truly surrender and I can truly discover and know God. Um, yeah. And, and discover who I am and who God created me. One of my favorite sentences in the big book is our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Mm-hmm. Well, what is that? That's really love God and love people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we have so many ways of defining love, but it, it really is maximum service to God and the people about us. And once I could understand that, I could really step into who God created me to be. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. 
So um, tell us how uh, you're at, you're at step 12. Uh, I mean, we're always doing the steps, but you mm-hmm. have made it to step 12. And so, which is the service part. Uh, and we know that we keep recovery by giving it away. Yes. That service is a huge part, right? Um, so how, what does service look like for you today? Well, uh, I, it really came to light. So I'm a, again, going back to purpose, maximum service to God and the people about us. Well, I, you know, I, I serve in my church and then I go on mission trips and, you know, I do various things and I, you know, I was trying to figure out, well, who are the people about me? Well, I'm in the hospital every day and we have tons of alcoholics and addicts here in the hospital every day. And <clears throat> in March of 2020, there was a Cochrane review, which was published, which if you're not familiar w- with what Cochrane reviews are, they are a meta-analysis of the literature that basically drive evidence-based medicine and the best practices for certain diseases. So a Cochrane review came out in March of 2020, which was a meta-analysis of 27 studies over 10,000 subjects that showed that Alcoholics Anonymous is the most effective treatment for the disease of alcoholism. It was better than cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational enhancement therapy, and 12-step variants. And when I read that, I thought, why is not every physician prescribing AA for all these patients? It's free. You don't have to get a pre-cert or, you know, you don't have to get that medication <laughs> approved. It's available everywhere. And, and part of that is personal to me because, again, from 2013 to 2015, I knew I had the disease of alcoholism. I was mm-hmm. beyond a shadow of a doubt continued use in the face of adverse consequences. And I was frustrated because I thought I'm a physician and I should know what the best treatments are for most diseases. And I didn't. Yeah. And everything I've learned about treating alcoholism and addiction, I have not learned in medical school. <laughs> and so uh, because of that, and then that was also during COVID. And, you know, one of the challenges when you're in the hospital about patients is you can't take them out of their room or move something else. And I thought, well, now we have these Zoom meetings and so what I did is at, at our hospital here at Stonecrest, and now this is through HCA, and my vision is I pray that it goes to every hospital. We have virtual AA meetings that are at 7 a.m. every day that I chair. I chair three, at least three meetings a week, but I also get to go up and talk to these patients and you know, share some of my experience, strength, and hope, and I give them a big book. And you know, I've, seen God, I've seen God do some amazing work in this, but I'm just, my, my, my main point that I just want to get to across to all doctors, nurses, healthcare, anybody is AA is the most effective treatment for alcoholism. And alcoholism is a disease, just like any other chronic progressive fatal disease. It needs to be treated daily. Like a diabetic can't take insulin once a week and think their blood sugar is going to be controlled. And also a diabetic doesn't take insulin for three months and think their blood sugar is going to be controlled. So I want to make that point known to at least physicians so that we can, because we have the solution to alcoholism. And it's now, it's not my opinion anymore. This is evidence-based medicine. Um, and so that that's what I do. And it's, it, I mean, it's been great. And I can tell you, it's a huge part of my recovery. And, you know, and that's also where abundant life is found. Yeah. You know, the, the amazing stories that happen, the people that get sober. And when you get, and when you get an alcoholic sober who really latches onto the program, it's not just their life that gets better. Their whole family life gets better. Their work life gets better. I mean, it, it affects so many people. And so I'm, I'm privileged and honored to be able to do that. Um, and I just, I think it's great. And it, and it takes a lot of coercion, but you know, what I tell people is, 
you know, if a diabetic doesn't want to take their insulin, they don't feel like taking it, they don't want to take it. If someone gives them that insulin every day, their blood sugar is going to be controlled. So a lot of times when we start in recovery in A, we don't want to go to meetings, we don't want to do the work, but if you just do it and you take it as prescribed, things happen and God goes to work and, you know, we get sober. All right. So I've got two questions. One, how do people connect with these Zoom meetings that you're talking about? So, well, when I talk to a lot of people in the hospital, a lot of people are blindsided by it. They're like, well, I don't have a problem with alcohol. And I'm like, well, you've been in the hospital twice in the past year with pancreatitis. (laughs) That's a problem, you know? And so I'm just trying to, and I don't want to shame them about it because that doesn't work. Um, But I'm just trying to reveal truth to them because we've been so deluded for so long and we're thinking that there's not a problem. So the the responses are widely variable, you know, when I see people in the hospital, but there are people who sign on and there are people who sign on even later when they leave. And we've had several people that have gotten one year of continuous sobriety uh, from being in the meetings. Yeah. And what, one, so, I'm, so I'm thinking of the, the people that are listening right now that say, I'd like to check out one of these meetings. How do they get to them? Uh, well, there's, it's a zoom link. The, the number is nine, two, one, eight, four, zero, one, eight, nine, one, seven. It's Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. But this meeting is no better than any other AA meeting in the country. Like this is not better or it's it's just an AA meeting. And what I want people to understand is you just need to go to a meeting every single day. (laughs) Um, And it doesn't matter which one it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay. wonderful. Now the book is Happy, Joyous, and Free by Uris, that's spelled J-U-R-I-S, Uris S. Yes. You can get it on uh, Amazon. And you can also, if you prefer to listen to a book rather than read it, there's an audio version. Uh, so, and I, and I highly recommend it. Uh, if you are inspired as I am by uh, personal stories, and if you, uh, especially those written, written by Christians, uh, a way to... Uh, Yours does a beautiful job of explaining the integration of his Christian faith with recovery. Uh, so beautiful book. Yours, thank you so, so much. So here, well, I did my second question. Oh, I'm sorry, was, Aaron. I only got my first question, okay. which is how to get there. And Yours told us. Yeah. Here's my second question. You had struggled to find this identity in your work, in your accomplishments, all of those things. And then you came to Uh, 12-step recovery. And so how did you find that integration where, oh, I now feel secure in my identity with Christ and 12 steps helped me get there? Not that 12 steps was my identity, but Christ is enough. Walk me through how you started to find yourself again, who you are in Christ through this process, because I think you found that. Yeah, well, you know, the, the steps are in order for a reason. Steps one through three is uh, relationship with God, is understanding God. Steps four through seven is relationship with self. And steps 10 through 12 is relationship with others. And so in going through that steps, I had to, I had to reconstruct my image and my ideas about God and about Jesus. And that I could do that through the big book, but I also, you know, that happens in AA meetings and through recovery with other people and surrounded by other men who are vulnerable and honest. And they're just, they are, they want to help you, you know, with, with expecting nothing in return. And then going through that, that cleaning house process of four through seven of going through my past. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one pivotal moment when I was in rehab, I 
I inadvertently did my fifth step with another guy in my group. We were supposed to just share a story with each other. And I just started talking. And I know that the Holy Spirit was involved because I shared my whole story from beginning to end. And I didn't leave things out and things that I swore I was going to take to the grave. Mm-hmm. And after yeah. I did that, I was free. I felt yeah. like I had no secrets and that I was born again. You know, that was kind of a, that was a pivotal moment in my recovery. So then and then as I grow in that now, I'm, I'm very comfortable with who I am, who God created me to be. And I don't really care what other people think about me. And it, I'm not saying that in a callous way. And it's not that I don't want people to like me. Yeah. But like if I'm doing the next right action and I'm doing what pleases God then I know that I'm being a humble servant in Christ. And I know that I'm, I'm doing what God has brought me on earth to do. Beautiful. Nice. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Uris. All right. Well, you've got the information. You've got the code to get to these Zoom meetings, but you can do it in your own hometown because the Zoom meetings are no better than any other meeting you could go to. Go to a meeting. And I think that's that's it, Uris. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you thank so you. much for joining us, man. Yes, Listeners, thank you so much for allowing me. Oh, uh, yeah. Great to see you. And I'm so glad you took the initiative uh, to introduce yourself uh, all those months ago. Yeah. This is this is a great gift to the Samson Society. Well, thank you. Oh. All right, brothers, stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. We've just had a conversation with Uris. What what were your thoughts? Because uh, you finding 12 steps after, uh, I want to say this delicately, after seeking hope in the church, there yeah. were gaps that were filled by 12 steps. Not because Christ wasn't enough, but because they showed you Christ in a way that the church didn't. Oh man, I will tell you, I, I, I love listening to him and it brought me back. I had that same feeling of excitement and relief uh, <laughs> when, I, when I walked into my first 12-step meeting and spirituality there was redefined for me and the gospel was brought into the focus in a different way. Now, I know that there are, uh, you know, there are other ways, there are other paths to sobriety, I'm grateful myself for the fact that I got my start in 12-step sobriety, uh, 12-step recovery. And I have noticed this, that very often, not always, but very often in Samson groups around the country, uh, the strongest members, the guys who take the lead and step up, who kind of already have an idea what what it means to be a Silas, and they've got an intuitive sense of where to go in this recovery journey. A lot of those people have 12-step recovery, uh, 12-step experience. So, you know, I'm grateful, so, so grateful. So, so let, me, let me back up to that experience for you, because yeah, when yeah. we planted uh, the first church in California, mm-hmm. I had taken a lot of 12-step experiences, into, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, in, in my church, we deal with sin, which usually means we shame you for sin. 
Right, yeah. In a 12-step group, nobody's accepting sin as being okay, but you're also not shamed for struggling with sin because everyone struggles with sin. That was kind of the goal of the church was, yeah, we don't have to say sin is okay, but we can be honest and we can remove the shame piece while dealing with sin as sin. So what was it about experiencing that where you walked away from that meeting and said, man, I just experienced church in a way that I always thought church should be. What were, yeah. the, what were the hallmarks of that experience? Well, I mean, it, first of all, it was the blistering honesty. The, just the stark vulnerability, the courage in that people said things that I had never heard said in church. Leading with weakness uh, it didn't seem as though anybody was trying to impress anybody else. It felt very much like a persona-free zone to me. Uh, and the way people listened and leaned in, it, there was so much empathy in the room. You know, my experience was if you start talking uh, uh, about sin in any other than general terms, you start to get specific, people get nervous and arms get crossed and they lean back, right? Right. That didn't happen. People opened up. They leaned in. So authenticity was honored. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was, eventually it dawned on me, the way to gain status in that group, and of course I was wanting to drive for status, <laughs> vulnerable. Just oh, to be vulnerable. Oh, man. That's, what a, that, that alone is such a beautiful thought. A community. Yeah. Where status is achieved through authenticity and vulnerability. <laughs> well, it certainly is where trust is established. Um, there, it was not a power structure, but there were some people who seemed to speak with a little more authority or who were, uh, and, and I think, you know, that authority was given to people who were the most vulnerable and the most honest. They were, they were then most trusted. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and those people had told their stories honestly for long enough that it probably felt very natural to those newcomers yeah. that had yeah. never spoken with authenticity to other people before. Right, right. I mean, that, and they were able to tell their story with absolutely zero shame. That was that was the cognitive disconnect. That was so disconcerting to me. Because, uh, <laughs> and, at this, and at the same time, so liberating and freeing. It still took me a while to, uh, you know, ease my way out of the shadows and stop talking in code and, and start, you know, begin the long process of getting honest with myself and others. But none of us do that until we're in a safe environment. I was going to say that, I mean, that makes me think of so many Samson meetings where a person might be new. Mm-hmm. And they are talking about whatever the topic is for the day, whatever they want to talk about. And and maybe everybody in the group knows, okay, this isn't the real stuff. This is the mm-hmm. prepared stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it, for some people that can draw that feeling of, I need to confront them and tell them to mm-hmm. be more honest. But this is day one of practicing and the coolest yeah. thing about samson meetings is this is the place you practice being honest yeah and if you 
if you practice being honest long enough, you'll terrify everybody at the Thanksgiving table because you'll lose lose that filter that people naturally have, which is not a good filter, but where you're like, yeah, this is just what it is. And then everyone's like, you weren't supposed to say that. And that's, that's a beautiful moment where you unconsciously lose the filter. And I think those old dogs that you're talking about, are yeah. the people who have done long enough that they're like, oh yeah, I, f- I forgot. You thought I was supposed to have shame for this. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I walk through the shame. I walk through the guilt. And now this yeah. is part of my story. And mm-hmm. I don't bear those things anymore, but I give you this story as a gift. Yeah. Right. Right. And when I am able to confess my own failures and my own character defects and speak about them frankly and honestly and with equanimity, uh, it makes it safe for the person I'm talking with to do the same. And now, now we can actually begin to really connect, which is what we were made for. This is now intimacy can actually begin to happen. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing is exactly what I was thinking. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing. Oh, my gosh. Well, good. All right. Well, sounds like we're coming to the end of this episode, Aaron. Uh, we do want to remind the listeners, as always, you can reach us at uh, piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, you want to uh, learn more about or, or uh, tell us more about your ideas for Samson Manor. That email address is samsonmanor at gmail.com. This, uh, this episode is probably coming up to right about the time that if you're going to the Eva, Tennessee... <laughs> That's your dog. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Hey, it's a dog. What can you do? Uh, We're getting close to Eva, Tennessee. If you want to stay for an extra day or two and come to Samson Manor and do some work projects, hang out with guys, email us at the Samson Manor at gmail.com. Samson without a P. Uh, Samson Manor at gmail.com address and let us know you want to do it. And we are going to have some fun with that. So this is probably the last uh podcast that we will bring that up because this will probably come out close to that time yeah could well be all right i guess that's a wrap then until next time i'm nate and i'm aaron (laughs) and we are your pals on the pirate monk podcast the pirate monk podcast is produced by members of the samson society Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.